Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for bringing us all together here another morning, peace and quiet and beautiful weather, Father. We thank you for a teacher, we thank you for a teacher of such good esteem, Father, knowledgeable. And I just pray that you will open our ears and our hearts so that we will know more about you, not just know about you. Give us this day, Father. I pray for direction for Dave, for Bob later on. Watch over us. Continues to guide us in your ways and be with us always, Father. Working in us through the Holy Spirit, I pray. In your holy name, amen. Amen. So I thought we'd start out today uh, reading Psalm 19. Bible, and of course Psalm 19 is about um, 
general revelation of God and the special revelation of God given in His Word, and uh, specifically the law, in that it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So I, I thought I'd start this morning, um, before we jump into Hebrews chapter 7 full on, I'm not going to cover the backstory this week, because I think we've covered that pretty well. So I would like to move through chapter 7 and 8 of Hebrews, if possible. Uh, I realize that's ambitious. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we know you better. Yeah. So, who can tell me about the, uh, the priesthood? Why is there a priesthood? Right, there are priesthood was set up by the law, um, as we understand it, post-Moses, uh, through Aaron and, and the law that was given through Moses, it, it gave us the ordinances of priesthood, which sometimes I call cultic practice, so last week I was using that term, and it's a correct usage of the term, but we tend to overload that term today, and we think of cult as something bad and negative, and cult is just a practice. And uh, so there is a, a religious practice, is probably a better way of, of saying it, that was established under the law for how um, the, the people of God would come into God's presence through the priesthood, priesthood being mediator. So if that's the purpose of the priesthood, what's the purpose of the high priest? Why is there a high priest? Dave? I saw your lips move. I think, I think you see it. More like an intercessor between. Uh, he has a special role yeah. in that he actually comes into the presence of God. So he comes before the mercy seat of God and offers a sacrifice for the people. So he has a, a special role in mediation. So why is a, another priesthood necessary? So when we read through uh, Hebrews here, we're reading that there is a, a high priest that was appointed by God. Uh, this priest was, he was qualified. We read about the qualifications for the high priest in chapter 5, that he had to be fully human. He uh, offers gifts and he's compassionate towards sinners. In other words, he's, he's from among his brethren and he understands them, has compassion for them in his mediation role. But he's uh, appointed by God and he's fully human. And that uh, the author of Hebrews is making a case that Jesus is this high priest. But the first question that would be asked for those that understand the law, they say, well, Jesus can't be a high priest. He's not of the priestly tribe, the Levi. So they had to establish that he's a different kind of priest. He's a priest, high priest on the order of Melchizedek. Who's this guy, Melchizedek? <laughs> we don't know, but we, we understand some things about him, right? What do we understand about him? From the king of Salem? Heard two things at once. 
Which? He didn't have a mother or a father. He, he, his genealogy is not listed. He doesn't have uh, a lineage that we can trace. That's an example of spontaneous generation. <laughs> well, uh, probably Melchizedek had a mother and a father, but the Bible doesn't list them. And that seems to be important. Pardon? Can't hold against it. Yeah. <laughs> well, what? Why is it significant that he didn't have uh, a genealogy listed? That way, he didn't have a beginning or Right. It establishes uh, symbolically an eternal priesthood that he doesn't have a beginning and an end. And so, it was important that this new kind of priesthood would um, have an eternal priest, one with no beginning and no end. What else do we know about Melchizedek? It's from his name. His name is Righteous. Mm -hmm. His name means King of Righteousness. Mm -hmm. And he was also King of a geographic area that was called Salem. Peace. Or peace. Shalom. So he's the king of righteousness and king of peace. So we understand that this um, this priest, uh, by his the definition, the name that we give him, or the description, I should say, the, uh, the name that we give him, is is both a priest without an eternal priest that is also a king, king of righteousness and king of peace, and that this. The argument that the author of Hebrews is making is that Christ is a high priest on the order of Melchizedek. He's a high priest like that. That he has, uh, that he is eternal, and that that's really important that this eternal priest would be, um, well, that this priest would be eternal. Because the high priest's job is to make offerings. To mediate between man and God. Yes, sir. I just had a question. Uh, is this listed as a king and a high priest? Is that common in this time? Or is it significant that, that Jesus fills the three offices of the Old Testament prophet, priest, and king? And Melchizedek fills those three offices too in the passage because he's listed as a king and a priest. Yep. And he prophesies. Yes, it is. It's part of the type. And that um, we understand that the priesthood of, of Aaron, the Levites, um, that they were uh, appointed, the high priest was um, anointed by the king. So. And, and we understand that, that was part of the qualification, that the king was involved in the, the high priest's appointment. Um, but there's also a divine, I mean, the, the king, the, the human king, was uh, a delegated authority, a viceroy for the true king, which is God in heaven. So God appoints or anoints the high priest. In this case... Um, you have one who is both eternal, and in that sense is God, and is king, uh, 
also taking the role of high priest. So it's like it, there's um, authority that's granted by the king, the divine king, for the high priest to perform his role. And it's important that since there is no higher authority than God himself, that that would, it makes sense that if the high priest has the highest authority, he is going to be God himself. Does that make sense? And of course, when God reveals uh, himself to us in full, uh, or even in part, that's called prophecy. That uh, prophecy is, um, from a perspective position, it's God speaking to his creation, as opposed to wisdom, which would be um, God's creation responding to that revelation. And so from you see all three in Melchizedek, and so you should expect to see all three in Christ. And so when we went through Samuel, we went through the whole uh, development of the prophet and the king, and primarily the king role of the king in God's administration. And now what we're seeing is um, a development of God as the high priest. That there is one that fulfills this role of high priest who in fact is God himself. And so that's why the the argument in Hebrews first establishes um, the divinity of Christ and the authority that he has there. And then the humanity of Christ and uh, the qualification that he has as a sinless person and yet fully compassionate from among his brothers. Uh, And then there's these warning passages that are tucked in there because this is a sermon and so there's uh, these warning passages are intended to as the, the message progresses to make application in a way. So it says, now pay attention to this. Don't neglect the revelation. Um, you know, pay attention to the, the ordinance of God. Uh, it shouldn't be, you should be teachers by now. So we see that these warning passages are strategically tucked in here. And we had one right in the middle of this high priest development because it actually starts at the end of chapter 4 and it's going to run all the way through chapter 10. So the, the development of both... Christ as high priest, and then what the high priest does as far as um, mediating over a new covenant and bringing sacrifice, an appropriate sacrifice once for all, for all humanity, to accomplish, uh, fulfill that new covenant is what's the content of what we're looking at. So it makes sense that as he's developing this, he would pick on this unusual character that we could kind of relate to. Remember the backstory: Abraham comes across Melchizedek, and he's revealed in these three capacities: prophet, priest, and king. And we understand also that it wasn't just uh, that story in uh, Genesis that we draw from to, to get this kind of typology, but we also see it in the Psalms. In fact, the Psalm that Jesus quoted when he was trying to help people understand who he was. We saw that in Matthew 22, but the psalm is Psalm 110. And it has to do with how the transcendent God can be imminent or together with his people um, as a ruling king and as a high priest. 
And that's what Psalm 110 is about. And I'll go ahead and read it for you because you're going to see this psalm. This is actually one of the most quoted psalms in the, in, in the Bible. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with horses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, when you're trying to, you're reading through that, there's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot packed in there, into that Psalm of David, um, which is talking about the dominion of the king, primarily, but this king is a king, and he's a high priest. Uh, he's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so David obviously understood this story of Melchizedek and this typology. He understood that there's an eternal priesthood, and if there's an eternal priesthood, that has some implications. <coughs> that means that this priesthood was known long before the priesthood that would come out of the law, Moses. And I want to help draw a relationship for you between the law and the priest. So what the priest the high priest does is according to the law he uh, prepares an offering to um, present before God for the people and it's all according to the law so I, I'll, I'll ask you the question what is the law? The book of Leviticus well that's part of it are you talking about the old covenant? There is, there is an old covenant Law, but what is law in, in general? What, what do we mean by the law? And then I'll ask specifically: Is, is it rules? Outside of the law, um, the law itself defines how things work, and you will be brought back into accord with what the law describes about how the kingdom works. And so we use the word in a lot of different contexts. We use it in the context of um, ordinances that are set up by men, 
And that's most commonly how we think about it. So you have to have a lawyer, someone that can understand the mind of men and uh, interpret that and then appeal uh, according to that, maybe change it because it is changeable, that law is. But there are other laws that we think of as involatile that, that, that don't change. Uh, the one that I most commonly use is uh, natural laws. Right? Gravity. <coughs> gravity doesn't change. <laughs> to the best of our knowledge, gravity is the way things work. Right? And uh, so there seems to be a natural law which is descriptive about the way things work, but it comes prescriptive when you find yourself outside of it. And there's an association between the law and the priesthood, because the description of how things work in the kingdom um, and the administration of that from the king, uh, how you bring the citizens into accord is the, the, the job or the role of the priesthood. He is the mediator between the, the lawgiver and the citizens that have an obligation to comply to the law, or to, uh, if they want to be citizens, they have to bring themselves into accord with the description of how things work, right? So that's what the law is, and so there's an association between the law and the high priest, which is why the priesthood was defined in the law, so when you look at Leviticus, it's talking about what the, a lot about what the priest has to do, right? And what the people do in association with the priest in order to come to God. And we understand that associated with uh, this description, um, there is a proclamation, and that we understand that in the form of covenants. So we have uh, the old covenant, the law that was given under, under Moses, and it had a particular job. What was the job, or the what was the purpose, it's probably a better word, of the law that was given through Moses. What was the purpose of that? The schoolmaster. The schoolmaster. Where do you find that? <laughs> in Galatians. Take a look at Galatians. It's in chapter 3. by keeping the law, but rather by faith 
in the sacrifice of the high priest, what the high priest has done for you. And that it's not possible for you to be um, acceptable as you are being a sinner in God's presence. Rather, you have to have one mediator for you offering a sacrifice. So he makes that case and he talks about Abraham. And, uh, and in, in doing that, he is bringing up the whole context of law and how that comes into play. He says, Brethren, I speak, speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So he's setting up a precedent about how things work when God declares um, to his creation what his purpose is what his plan is, and in this case, what the destiny is, the inheritance. He says, why the law then? Why, does, why did God then institute a law? It was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, that is Christ, would come whom the promise, to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. If the law had been, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So he's he's correcting a misunderstanding that people can actually come to God through the law. It isn't through the law that 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 promise is is uh, made complete. It's through the one to whom the promise is given. He says, uh, where was I at here? 22. 22. Um, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before, uh, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the laws become a tutor, become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So that's where you were, you're quoting from. The law is a, is a teacher. It's intended to uh, tell us a couple of things. It's intended to um, show us how we're outside of what God has declared is good and right. So it reveals our sin. And it is not intended to be prescriptive as to how you can get back into life. Rather, it shows you that you're outside of life. So in that sense, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And that the only, the only remedy you have to get back into uh, the kingdom of God, to be a, a citizen with full rights and life, connected to the kingdom is through the one to whom the promise was given who is the rightful heir. Now if you read in Revelation uh, 
when there's, in, in Revelation after chapter uh, 3, so there's uh, letters to the churches in, in chapters 2 and 3, and then it, it moves into what is to come. And what it starts out in a court scene. It starts out at the throne of God. And you see what's surrounding the throne of God. And there is a, a book that is sealed. And that is, uh, I, I sometimes call it the book of destiny. It's the book of God's proclamation about how all of creation is, works. How it's going to play out. And that book is sealed and no one has the right to the book. To open that book. Except for the heir. Now, it just so happens, if you have the one who, who wrote the book, who made the declaration, and he's eternal, how can he have an heir? Because according to our understanding of uh, transfer of property, it occurs upon the death of the one who made the will. But God doesn't die. However, there is one that is presented the lamb who was slain. And he has the right to take the book. He is the rightful heir. He has the one, he is the one who can open the seals of the book and reveal the destiny of God's creation. That's who Christ is. He is the rightful heir. And so when we understand what law is, law is descriptive about what God is doing. It's not prescriptive about how we can ever get to God. The only way we could ever get to God is if the rightful heir allows it. If he, by his grace, makes a way for us. And we see that in John chapter 5. They're, they're questioning Jesus. Who are you? Who are you, man? Tell me what's going on. And uh, Jesus makes this, this claim in John chapter 25. Actually, I'm going to back it up a little bit. I'm going to back it up to verse 19 in chapter 5 of John. I'm just going to read this. I'll let you, I'll let you settle there. John chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So he's uh, establishing that the Son does the work of the Father. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not, uh, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Now judgment is the, the job of a king, by the way, that's part of administration duties. So, all, uh, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So he's showing now how, uh, how you obtain eternal life. It's through the Son. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, he is the one that is eternal. Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, that, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So what we see is that this, this one, the Son, is the rightful heir of life from the Father. And in fact, has life himself. He is eternal. He is the only one that can, according to the law, the description of how things work in God's kingdom, actually mediate between God and men. So in that sense, he is a high priest. Yes? <clears throat> okay, so... <laughs> I'm trying to make the linkage between Melchizedek and Christ. Yep. Okay, and you said that Melchizedek is prophet, priest, and king. Mm -hmm. And in Hebrews 7 1, it talks about the king yep. and, the, and the priest. There's the prophet part. Um, and then the second part of the question is mm -hmm. how does Christ, I understand that Christ is the king, mm -hmm. I mean, Revelation. Um, and he is our high priest, and if we go through him, he's the mediator. Um, again, I'm not sure where the prophet fits in exactly. Um, anyway, can you just address those? Well, and I would refer to your comment back here. In the When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he was making a prophetic utterance. He was speaking for God to God's creation. In this case, he was speaking blessing. What you find out is that God not only speaks blessing, but he can also speak curse. And when he speaks curse, he doesn't do it lightly. He does it in accord with uh, the description of how things work in his kingdom, according to the law. Which is why when the law was given through Moses... And you read about uh, Moses encouraging the people to obey or to have a heart after the law, that in doing that, they were choosing life, because that's where real life is, in God. And if they didn't, and in, and in that is blessing, right? That is, that is God saying, good on you. We don't have life in ourselves, Right? But when we, uh, and, and I love that expression, good on you, it's an Australian expression. It, it basically means, hey, blessing, brother. And it's, that's God directing his, uh, his love and his life and his whole being, his favor towards us. So it's not something that we can do in that sense of prophetic, from God to us. That's what Abraham, or what Melchizedek did, or Abraham. And Abraham recognized that. He saw that there was an authority from God uh, in Melchizedek's proclamation. And as a result of that, Abraham paid a tithe. As a result of that? I knew I was waiting for you were going to catch that. Are you paying because you're blessed? 
Well, what do you, what do, you do? Um, okay, let's see, four things. Uh, let's see, and this is in uh, Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Abraham gave him a tenth of all. So what came first? Blessing of the time. The blessing. The blessing. Out of God's goodness, he brought refreshment and life. He brought um, bread and wine, because, I mean, you've got to remember, remember the backstory. Abraham was with his men out, went as far as Damascus and was, you know, coming back and uh, distributing booty, essentially, to restore, not to gain wealth, but to restore um, the kingdom. And he meets Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessed. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And then Abram recognizes the authority of God and the grace of God. And as a result of the grace of God, freely gives back to God that which is his. So it wasn't that he was buying a blessing. Rather, he was responding to the blessing of God, which is what uh, I think many people experience when they come into salvation. So, remember, we've talked about the order of salvation and how things occur. and Almost all of the, the things that occur in salvation are God working on behalf of his creation prior to creation ever responding in, in repentance. But the response of repentance and faith is new life and forgiveness of sins. And what does it feel like if you've been carrying around uh, so I'm, I'm a backpacker in previous lives, and before pre this, and uh, you know you got your backpack on, you've been out, you just did 45 miles. It was a long day, right? Or a long series of days. You usually don't do 45 miles. You usually do about 20, 25. My brother is actually going to be doing about 150 miles when I visit him here in a couple of weeks. He'll be 14,000 foot peaks, so he'll climb a couple of 14,000 foot peaks in a day. And come down, and after 25 miles, 30 miles, he's pretty shot, right? And he takes his backpack off. And I'm creating a word picture for you. How does that feel? When that because you got to remember, when he's climbing this 14,000-foot peak, he may, he may park part of his stuff at the base, or wherever his uh, starting point is, but sometimes he carries that stuff all the way up the mountain. Because he can't come back for it. He's got to carry it forward to where he's going to. That's a heavy load. And he takes it off at the end of the day. What, what does that feel like? Yeah, that's, that's Abraham giving a tent. He's like, wow, God just blessed me. Not because of anything. I mean, I was, I was fighting for that which God said was right. And he blessed me. That's what the tithe is about. It isn't, he's not trying to earn anything. So the response, so what the law does is it 
helps us see those things. So that when that burden is lifted, so when a person comes into uh, salvation, there's conviction, right? The Holy Spirit, you understand, part of his job is to bring the full weight of understanding of God's requirement upon a human life. And that in that, there's an incredible sense of weight. And what Jesus said, he said, take my yoke upon you. In other words, he's already taken that. Because he would rather give us life than have us carry around death. And that's what he does. And the response is, usually people have this overwhelming response of joy. Right? And they go forth in, in praise of God. Now, sometimes we understand the world comes in and, you know, the weeds grow up and people don't always remain in a state of joy. And when I got up this morning, I wasn't particularly joyful. I was kind of in pain. And, you know, but... I understand as I reflect on the law, as I meditate on what God, who he is, a description of him and his, what his kingdom is and what his plan is and what he's done and what he's doing, it actually lightens my load. I become lighter. I give it time. That's, that's what the law is about. The law, catch my notes here, Find it. May not find it. That's okay. Um, the law is describing God's character and his kingdom order. It reveals our sin and it supports the priesthood. It declares the necessity for a priest or an intercessor. It brings us to Christ. That's what says in Galatians. It actually brings us to him. That's the purpose of it. So when we read about what's going on with the high priest and the new covenant, that's what this is all about. This is all about how Jesus fills this, um, this role functionally in the kingdom of bringing us into the presence of God and actually offering his life for ours to bring us life. He is the son who has life in himself. And yet he lays it down for us. That's an incredible love that God displays towards us. Let me go ahead and read about the high priesthood that is on this order of Melchizedek and the covenant, the new covenant. So when, when we talk about an eternal priest, an eternal priesthood, associated with the law, that means there's an eternal law that came before Moses. And there was a priesthood to mediate in that law that precedes Moses. What we see is that Moses's, what Moses brought was a way that we could understand through practice what God had already done and instrumented from the beginning of his creation. And that, that we're going to see that what Moses the type that Moses had of both the whole cultic practice of the temple or the tabernacle and the sacrificial system was just a form of what God had already done, what he had already set up from before creation to be accomplished in his creation. 
And that when Jesus came, he actually brought a new covenant. And this new covenant was foretold in Jeremiah. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to quote for us. So let me go ahead and read here. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and I'm in Hebrews chapter 7, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the trans translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like a son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So this is an eternal role. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser was blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In other words, he's making the case here and probably other translations uh, might have it a little bit more uh, understandable for you, that um, when Abraham paid a tenth, when he responded to the blessing of God given through this eternal priesthood, that he was, um, in a sense, doing this for all of his descendants. And that even Levi, who would later be appointed under the law of the tribe of Levi to to be the priests and the high priest would come through that line. That they were actually paying a tithe and that they were the people of God. They weren't special, in other words. That all men fall under this category. And all men have this opportunity to, through faith, be the same as Abraham and pay a tithe to the high priest, who was an eternal high priest. He goes on, now a perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So, if the law could actually bring life, why not just follow the, what the law prescribed in, in Aaron? Why do you need this other guy, Melchizedek? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning, concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, in which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the word of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope 
through which we draw near to God. That's the purpose of the perfect law, to draw us near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests, who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son, made perfect forever. So here you see that whole discussion of the priesthood and the law, and how the law that came through Moses is imperfect. It could never lead to life. It has a different purpose. But rather, there is an internal decree of God, an eternal law, which we understand, and it's life and death, and that there is a, a high priest, an eternal priest, who brings us into life, and he does that through his, his own self. <clears throat> now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law, the Levitical priest, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, he said, For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been in back enacted on better promises. Well, let me stop there for a second. Really important words here of what the author of Hebrews is saying about religious practice. And he's specifically speaking about the religious practice of the Jews. But um, he could be speaking about any religious practice, right? What we understand is religious practices, a lot of times we characterize them as man's way of trying to get to God. It's, it's ordinances or uh, rules uh, or a prescriptive path that we would follow in order to somehow get to God. And what, uh, what we understand is that what God wrote down and gave by revelation to Moses was a pattern of what was really happening in heaven. It was, he says here, it's a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things, it says in verse 5. 
And that's why when Moses wrote this down, he wrote it down to the to the very jot and tittle, right? He made sure that it was perfectly recorded and the best that man could do such that they could exactly construct the tabernacle because the tabernacle would point them to the true tabernacle in heaven. So when we study the tabernacle, we should be thinking, what is God trying to tell us about himself? And what is he trying to tell us about his court? Because that's what it's really about. So Diane's, my wife, is uh, teaching the kids the, the tabernacle right now. So you're bringing this up, so I had to jump in. So she was telling me this morning, there's just so many things from the tabernacle that point to Christ. For example, there's one door. Mm-hmm. It's all linen. It's <coughs> joined and fitted together. Uh, you know, and, and there's, you walk in and there's the altar. So the first thing you have to do is take care of this, you know, that, right. and sins. And then you still have to wash yourself. Okay? Like mm-hmm. uh, Jesus washed the feet, you know, and right. Peter didn't want to do it. Well, I wash myself. No, wash the whole thing. No, no. You just have to cleanse yourself from the world, you know, the, the feet and hands thing. And then, then you go in, the priest would go in, and there's, there's just a lot of... Uh, pointing there to Christ that, that I've never thought of before. It's it's all about Christ, and it's all about God and His kingdom. All of it. That's that's what the author just told us. It's all about Christ. So when we apply a hermeneutic and interpretation of the Bible that is Christ centric, and the author of Hebrews does this very much so. That's what he's doing right now and showing us that Christ is the high priest. This helps us interpret other passages in the Bible. We're interpreting it through understanding that Christ is the fulfillment of that. That this is what's really going on in heaven on on our behalf. And in our presence. Um, It makes that mean much more. So when we come and we worship, what we're doing is we're not fulfilling some requirement where we're getting a check mark such that if we get enough check marks at the end of our days, we'll have our check marks will outweigh our X's. Um, and we'll have enough merits to outweigh the demerits um, that we would be acceptable to God. And some religious practice is all about that. And if it's all about that, that's a heavy load. Because you're always carrying that. And what Jesus says is, no, I took all of that. I took all of it on myself and he then presents for us an acceptable sacrifice to God a life that is worthy right, of all worth so when we come in and we practice our religious practice as Baptists we have religious practices which is interesting <clears throat> and when we do that we do that with a heart that knows that this is this is about giving back to God uh, and um, in celebration and worship and joy um, and from our time and from our money and all the things that we do as part of our religious practice is all about recognizing who he is and what he's done. That's what worship is. And that's, that's the pattern. He has obtained a more excellent ministry 
by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And what I will say is this, this better covenant and these better promises were eternal and from before the foundation of the world, just like the priesthood of which this declaration of God and his kingdom uh, is associated with is all precedes creation. So all of this came before, and everything which came after is just a type and a pattern. Now, I've got 30 seconds. <laughs> 30 days. And I'm going to read through, and I'm going to read through the new covenant. This is right out of Jeremiah. So if you look, this is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And this is what Jeremiah got as a, a revelation from God that he gave to the people about what God was doing, even though they were being crushed at the time. This is what God said. He said, and then I'll read from, uh, from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It says, uh, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been occasion for a second. Uh, for finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the, di on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> for they did not continue in my covenant and did not care for them, says the Lord, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. I, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And that's probably where we should pick up. But this new covenant, which you understand, is not a covenant of rules that allow you to work your way into the presence of God. Rather, it's God putting in your heart and in your mind his description of himself and his kingdom and him showing you mercy and forgiving your sins. But that's something totally new that the old covenant couldn't do and people couldn't keep it in here. When they tried to make it prescriptive, they couldn't do it. Let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to see how it all is knit together. Lord, that the author of Hebrews is pulling from all of the of your word that had been revealed to him at that point in time, which we know today is our Old Testament and uh, in the teaching of Christ in, in his day. Lord, he's pulling that all together to show us uh, what you're doing, that this is a, a new thing in our understanding of the way that the world works. And the reason why is because it's not of the world. It's of you and of your kingdom. And Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we just we offer you ourselves today. We ask that you would change our hearts and change our minds, that we would be useful servants to you. Lord, we ask for your blessing. Not because we deserve it, but because you love us. We thank you for that. And Lord, um, 
We ask that you continue to protect us and provide for us as we move out from here into this next week. Lord, we uh, ask that you be with Bob this morning as he presents your word, that many would hear and be convicted, and that, Lord, you would change lives. Thank you, Lord, for that. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.